Ricky Bobby. Ricky, Ricky, Ricky Bobby. Ricky Ticky Tavi. Ready? I'm Daniel Forkner. Here we go. I'm David Torcivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse in the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. We're just chilling on the beach. Drinking Coronas and sitting in the sand. Daniel and me cashing out all this money. Me and David took the Patreon money and went to the beach. Down here in Miami, spreading coronavirus. What is that big wave coming our way? A hundred hours of information that no one listens to. More like a hundred hours times a hundred episodes multiplied by two or 1.5. We never shut up and that's our greatest strength. Cause the people listen, they say, Daniel and David, why don't you stop talking now? No, I actually just looked it up. It's 120 hours over what is now Daniel. And that's not counting this episode, which we all know is going to be over 11 hours long. We've done 100 episodes and 120 hours of information. Ooh. Wah, wah, wah. Wah, wah, Amazing. Incredible. Thank you, everyone, for sticking through. And it is with a heavy heart that we're saying that uh, you're going to have to endure another 100 episodes. <laughs> what? Yeah, I was wondering, what are you about to say, David? Never ends. 100 years, 100 episodes. 100 more times episodes for a hundred, hundred more episodes, hundred hours each episode, a thousand hours of ashes, ashes. Never ending. A fourth Reich of, well, no, maybe not that, but a lot of ashes. Uh, <laughs> no, but it's exciting. We're, we've been numbering these episodes. When we started with episode one, we numbered it zero, zero one, not zero one. And at the time we thought we were being uh, a little bit ambitious saying, oh, We'll never need those that extra zero to make it a hundred, but here we are, two years, a little bit more, and a uh, hundred episodes. So we wanted to do something fun for this. I think I actually made a joke that we should have done zero zero one. That's what I said. Zero zero one. No, you said zero one. I said we we did zero zero one instead of zero one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think we're going to make it to zero, 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 one, a thousand episodes. You never know. What was that, 20 years of broadcasting? We'll just release one a day. We'll get there much faster. <laughs> Easy. Uh, no, but this is 100 episodes. We're exciting. It's a little bit of celebration. This is not our normal deep dive into a particular topic. Um, it's more chatty uh, and it's more fun. And instead of looking back at the last 100 episodes, which I think is easy to slip into, we thought it might be interesting instead to look forward with this 100th episode. Look forward to 100 days in the future, David? 100 months? Keep going. 100 quarters? 25 years? No. 100 years? Yeah, that's... 100 centuries? 
<laughs> no, let's scale it back a little bit. 100 years. 100 millennia. 100 years, I think. We, we wanted to say, well, we've been talking a lot about the past, and we talk about the past because we're scared about the future, but maybe it'd be fun to take an episode and talk about what we see or what we hope for the future 100 years from now. So what is this? It's, it'll be 2120. We'll be dead. At least our bodies will. Our brains living in supercomputers. No, probably not. I hope not. I don't plan on surviving the year. Our current what? form, David, will have, you know, transpired. But who knows what the second form will be? Maybe this is the second form. Maybe this is our 99th form and we're... Our second form is somebody generating some sort of WaveNet voice replicator off of our hundreds of hours of podcast recordings. You know, it's interesting you say that because, yeah, we want to look to the future and imagine what might be and maybe make it a little bit more optimistic, a little bit lighter than usual because I feel like we, we depress a lot of people, David, and I don't want to do that every time. And why are you, what are you doing then, Daniel? You're doing a bad job of whatever you're trying to do. You're saying I don't, we don't depress people? I'm saying we do depress people and you're doing a bad job not doing that. No, I'm saying we need to take a break from depressing people. Okay, yeah. So let's look back at some of our episodes, uh, maybe summarize them once again and, and think about where we might go with those in the future. And you mentioned what, someone taking our, our voices, our 150 hours, and creating AI personalities out of them, making us as human beings totally irrelevant and obsolete, something we kind of touched on in, in one of our episodes. But I was trying to think, what episode would I want to think about? And one topic that comes up a lot on Ashes Ashes is surveillance. And I think this is one of those scary topics that you actually said was one of the the main things that pushed you over the edge mm -hmm. uh, in terms of criticizing the broader systems that we have is the fact that going along with our global economy and the need for infinite growth is this race to the bottom of who can extract information the quickest from every single point of our lives. Yeah. And part of that is because, you know, it's, it's terrifying. But the other half is, you know, I'm, I'm like a secret surveillance pervert. What, what is that? Well, you know how like people who are really, you know, homophobic or people who are, well, I don't know, they, a lot of people project where they're like really against something, but it's because they're secretly into it. And I'm a part of me is scared. That's why I'm so anti-surveillance um, and probably also why I have all those cameras rigged up in your rooms and, uh, you know, own seewhatdanieldoes.com that streams 24-7 uh, your life for a nominal pay-per-view fee. Wait, I thought you said that was an, just an art project. It is. It's performance art, and it's a performance profit, baby. So you're so scared of surveillance because you subconsciously realize that if you had the power... I realize all these other weirdo surveillance perverts out there, if I can do this, if I can trick my idiot friend into being the subject of my quote-unquote performance piece while I make bank, then I assume everyone else is doing much worse. Well, you haven't canceled the show about me yet, so I guess my life isn't that boring. At least that's, that's good to know. No, it's very popular, actually. Wasn't there a TV show about that in Japan? There was a guy who um, signed up for a game show. I can't remember what it's called, but they told him that he just had to live in one room for like two years, 
and try to win his way out from sweepstakes. Like he had to. Oh yeah. Like all his subsistence had to come from magazines. So like yeah, they didn't like give him anything, and it was just an empty room, and they he had to win stuff in order to fill it up. Right. The only way he could eat is if he filled out like a lottery ticket from a magazine, and then he got like a hundred cans of spam randomly. And it was all being broadcast for TV. Did he know that it was being broadcast? I don't think he did. I don't know. I'm sure. Maybe he did. Um, yeah, so we <laughs> talked about surveillance on this show a lot, David. We talked about government <laughs> surveillance. We talked about facial tracking. We've talked about medical surveillance, where a lot of us think that our medical records are private, safe, and secure. But in fact, that's not always the case. And what is surveillance, right? Um, we think of surveillance as just a way for companies to collect data, but why do companies and, and governments want data on our lives? Why do they want to know more about us? Because ultimately, what that data allows people to do is then control and influence us based on what they know about us. It, it doesn't serve anyone's interest to know about your life unless they can do something with that. And, and what they're going to do impacts you. So we talked about, for example, you know, why is it a bad thing to allow insurance companies to track how much water you drink or how fast you drive your car? Because if they have a baseline knowledge of how everyone acts and how much water you're drinking, then they can exclude you from affordable pricing of, of insurance if they feel that you're not behaving in a way that they approve of. And this, this type of logic is going to be present in almost every single industry that can get data on you. In the finance world, you go to get a loan from the bank, but it just so happens that they have knowledge about uh, your Facebook friends. And Facebook has provided some kind of algorithm to group people based on their credit scores. And the bank finds out that even though you've never missed a payment on your bill, well, you've got a lot of friends who uh, aren't trustworthy. And if they ever get into trouble, the bank thinks, well, Maybe they're going to be asking you for money. And so we don't want to give you money because you're a higher risk. The more data that people have on you, the more they can use that to control and influence you. And as we talked about in episode 11, Designing Deception, when it comes to public relations, so much of influencing people is done behind the scenes, not so much directly, like, you know, you see an advertisement that says, buy this hamburger or whatever. But true influence on the masses of people comes through the infrastructure, either digitally or physically, or um, maybe some more cultural infrastructure around media and influencers. These things get built behind the curtains to then divert the way people act. And I imagine a future 50 or so years from now where everyone has a driverless car, assuming that, you know, infrastructure that allows the creation of that type of thing hasn't collapsed by then. But imagine a world where everyone is embedded in technological systems that can be controlled and automated from an external source. And I was thinking about this because I saw an article recently about a man who purchased a Tesla vehicle. Uh, he bought it used and it came with the you know autopilot feature. But then Tesla, the company, found out that he had not purchased that feature directly. So he just happened to inherit it in the, the used car purchase. And they decided that since he didn't pay for the auto uh, drive feature, they disabled it. And it kind of set a lot of people off this thinking, wait, like, wait a minute, do I want a, a company to be able to remotely access and disable features on my 
automobile. Um, automobile. Automobile. And obviously a lot of people don't like that idea. And I imagine a world in which all the data that that companies collect on us gets aggregated. And then let's say you're driving your, your car, except it's on autopilot, and you don't really control that anymore because now all the laws have been established to say that everyone has to be in some kind of autopilot system. But now that system can be controlled and, and influenced by artificial intelligence that says, you know what? Everyone who drives to work, we want to segment people, just like we talked about in the suburb episode we did, David, where you said, you know, in the suburbs, you have this interesting phenomenon where all the housing is grouped by price and value so that people end up getting segmented based on their income. And then school districts get created based on people's income level so that you have this just very insidious and unforeseen infrastructure that divides people and separates them from one another, creating um, divisions culturally, creates suspicion, creates a division in resources where it's easy to discriminate against certain groups without people really even directly understanding or experiencing this or knowing about it because it's behind the scenes. And so the same thing can happen with our transportation. Oh, you're driving to work, but because you're a certain income, the car just happens to reroute you to see certain retail shops. But lower income people without their knowledge are suddenly rerouted to see fast food joints or something else that companies have decided for us the paths that we are going to take. And how would we know? Pish posh. Daniel, you're thinking small brain, baby brain. These are the types of things that, yeah, people talked about five years ago and some of the most evil people in America are working their hardest to try and make a reality. Hats off to you, Elon Musk. But this is not a show about 10 years in the future. This is a show about 100 years in the future. What does this mean 100 years from now? Think, 100 years ago, World War I had just ended. Uh, the world was in the beginning of the roaring 20s. Everyone thought the future was going to be gilded, made out of gleaming glass and gold. It was Art Deco. Everyone's so excited. And then the world fell apart 10 years later. Here we are after 10 years of huge amounts of economic growth. And uh, we might be looking at our own version of a 1918 flu pandemic uh, in front of us. We might be looking at the collapse of the economic system of, you know, of the entire world. But none of that will matter in 100 years because we're going to mean an entirely different thing. So. What do you think the future holds for surveillance? Okay, I imagine three scenarios. Uh, the first scenario, the best slash worst case scenario is that the economy crashes, um, surveillance companies go out of business, and we are freed from our chains of, of corporate overlords, but also all the, the negatives that come along with uh, global scale economic collapse. We're all huddled around fires, campfires, something like that. So you're talking like a pure Mad Max future where there's no surveillance just because there is no anything. Yes. And this is a best case slash worst case. <laughs> well, well, that maybe that can be the next topic is when we come to the uh, global economy, what is our 100-year vision? But just hyper-focusing on surveillance. Uh, the second option I see is that surveillance doesn't go away. 
And this is the absolute worst case scenario is that we all get divided more and more into classes of people based on maybe it starts out as income, but eventually it becomes a caste system where where you are born determines which company you belong to, right? You're a company village now and every action you take is influenced and the infrastructure only allows certain people to go certain places. You know, we talked about in one of our surveillance episodes about this software that has been rolled out in a couple large retail stores where combined with facial tracking, companies can identify customers by their face. And then based on how these customers behave, if the company decides they no longer want these people to be patrons at their stores, the automatic doors will not open for them when they come to the store. Now, the first step of this is, of course, targeting people that are quote unquote criminals, right? So someone living in poverty, needs something to eat, steals a candy bar from a convenience store, suddenly gets their face on a list that says, don't let them into Target, which happens to be the only grocery store around. So spiraling further and further into this bottom class of our society. But imagine that type of thing happening everywhere. When you go to an office building, uh, there's one elevator you can take and there's only certain floors that you can access. Maybe you go to the shopping mall and there's only certain stores that you can go into. We find ourselves in a, a world where because every single interaction we have is tracked, surveilled, and compiled and judged by some kind of artificial intelligence that's being driven by a malicious human-created algorithm, we have no control of our lives and we have no freedom. Now, the third vision of this is we reach this type of stalemate, constantly one-upping the system where we talked about how uh, some savvy designers have been creating fashion that can throw off facial tracking systems or hats that can confuse the cameras. Or we even talked about the makeup that is used by gigolos on their faces that completely... It's, it's juggalos, <laughs> not, not gigolos. <laughs> or you talked about the makeup that juggalos use on their face that completely confuses facial tracking cameras. But we can imagine the companies coming back and redesigning the software. So, so I can see us reaching this kind of stalemate where the surveillance becomes normalized, but nobody likes it. And the companies acknowledge that no one likes it, but we all kind of agree, well, it's just going to be here and companies keep innovating. So we just have to keep coming up with more and more insane fashion items to escape this surveillance panopticon. And it ends up setting off one of the greatest fashion revolutions the world has ever seen. A hundred years of fashion. That's your third vision. Yes. The golden age of fashion. Everyone else is predicting a hundred years from now, a hundred years of fascism, but Daniel's predicting a hundred years of awesome fashion. So I like it. And we all know that fascism has never had good fashion. So ergo de facto, mm -hmm. the, the golden mm -hmm. age of fashion also sets off the decline of fascism. I, I can't tell if you're being sar sarcastic or not. No, I'm being serious. You're being serious that fascism never had good fashion? Yeah. Premium aestheticism is like a strong component, in my opinion, of fascism. Hugo Boss emerged from the rise of fascism. And I, I think pretty much everyone will agree that, you know, the Nazis were pretty sharp dressers. Yeah, but that's just like your opinion, man. 
Okay, well, I'm not going to sit here and and argue the uh, merits of Nazis. So, uh, let me give you my three takes, and and um, I'm not I'm not going to discuss this Mad Max world, which is always a looming possibility, and I don't think it needs to be said. But I'm going to take your second world and take it to its logical conclusion, which is what I think will happen in a hundred years if things go poorly, and that is the complete elimination of free will, vis-a-vis surveillance. So. In this show, we've talked numerous times about the elimination of choice and the presentation of controlled choice as the illusion of free choice, right? So you're looking to meet someone with friends, a coffee shop, whatever. You open your app. It suggests, you know, a limited number of shops. They all have ratings, whatever. You end up going to one of those. But you never realize there's all these shops available around you that just didn't show up on this app or Google decided not to show you or because the ratings were artificially manipulated, it wasn't one of your top options. So you never experience the actuality of your location and the things that surround you. You've been funneled into a single option. Well, we can imagine in a world where surveillance is approaching perfect and total and complete that in a world constructed like that, our very choices are being networked with this information and funneled down these same paths so that basically from the moment we're born, our paths are decided for us into what makes certain people the most money, the most profit by the exploitation of our life and the predetermination of what that path will be. And we are shuttled down this path without any choice the entire time believing we have the illusion of free will, but never actually obtaining that because our actual choices via the false illusion choice is limited to us. So, I mean, we sort of see hints of this now, right? Where we think we're consuming competing media, but it's all owned by the same media conglomerates. It's just been funneled down to give us one particular type of media because we meet some certain demographic uh, requirement and that's what we're shown. And we miss out on this wide variety of world. On YouTube, you go and you watch videos and it says, oh, they like this, 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 this. And next thing you know, you're watching the same type of videos as another very narrow demographic group. And those videos start influencing your taste and you end up even more in this group locked in, whether that's radicalized for worse or in some weird Japanese jazz from the 70s music channel that I always seem to end up in on YouTube. It's all been predetermined. Or what, what is it that we're always talking about when it comes to global development, David, about how, you know, the World Bank, the IMF and then international corporations are always looking to what, in their own words, tap new markets around the world. And what that usually means, or what it always means, is how do we integrate people who are not in our systems so that we can exploit their labor and extract profit from them? And what this usually means is how do we uh, um, evacuate people from rural areas into the cities where we can get them hooked up to our financial markets, teach them English, um, and then exploit them? And a lot of times you hear this with education. So like what you're talking about with the lack of free will from the day we're born, what immediately comes to my mind is all these people like Bill Gates, but a lot of these neoliberal corporations who are like, we need to educate people and we're going around the world installing schools. And it's always a Western model of education that has a technology component in these countries that historically have nothing to do with our society, right? And why do you think that is? I mean, why are we teaching English to people? Why are we teaching English as a solution for people who have never spoken English? Is it because maybe we can now educate them the way we want to influence how they behave? And imagine a world where with surveillance being everywhere and education being digital, 
And you have all these corporations who segment people based on, oh, you know, these are the servant class. And then you have a prepackaged curriculum from the day a child is born, pretty much guaranteeing that they will only be taught the things that will aid them in providing labor for these corporations, but they will be precluded from education that might empower them to think or to organize. And in a world where we have total control of technology, it is not a stretch of the imagination to say that this elimination of free will effectively is not only possible, but almost inevitable if we allow the single pursuit of profit to be the primary driving force of these what are ostensibly surveillance companies disguising themselves as technology companies that exist to make our experience on Earth more convenient and more easy, but really, you know, to make us the best consumer possible. So that's, that's my dystopic vision of the future, minus, you know, the Mad Max, everything collapses, which, let's be honest, is maybe more likely. But, you know, maybe in the Elysium uh, capital of the elite that they've escaped the climate change hordes, uh, and they're floating on Mars or in, in orbit or whatever it is, that's the world they live, and they think they're so free that they're anything but. But at the same time, and the reason we're making this episode 100 years into the future, as we sit here on this beach, sipping Coronas, discussing coronavirus, Daniel, is because we think that in order to build a better future, in order to work towards something that is not this dystopian hellscape, then we have to imagine that future and know what we're building towards. And in your case, you are fighting this surveillance. You're fighting it with fashion. You're fighting it with face paint, with tools, techniques, ways of altering our behavior and our culture in order to find our unique individuality. But I think there's a second option there where we don't fight this system, but we embrace it for the greater good. The data that we collect on our day-to-day life and the world around us is not inherently harmful. This data can be used for incredibly good and powerful things, enhancing not the bottom line of the companies that collect this data, but the quality of life for everyone whose data is compiled. This is absolutely possible, and in a world where we design our economy around not the betterment of a very small group of wealthy and powerful people, but for the betterment of everyone who participates in that economy, everyone in the world, eventually, then we can use this data to improve all of our life. And if we have to collect the data, and I I feel really strongly that the cat is out of the bag, uh, Pandora's box has been opened, and I, I don't think that that can be closed outside of the Mad Max future where the technology is not available to us anymore, we have to accept that this is inevitable, but that this data... And what we do with it does not have to be evil. And in the vision that I like to see 100 years from now, we are using this data to build a better, more equal, equitable world that everyone participates in, and it enhances our happiness, our longevity, our health, and better makes us able to be stewards of the world, of the living things on it, and ultimately the climate and earth itself. And I really do think that's possible, but it's unfortunately going to have to begin with the dismantling, basically, of the entire Silicon Valley apparatus, as well as the industrial apparatuses that support this in companies that wouldn't ostensibly call themselves Silicon Valley, but absolutely are part of the greater military industrial complex, things like GE, whatever. And these companies, uh, everyone out in California, it all just needs to be wiped from the map. And, and it's going to be a lot of work. But I I really actually do think it's possible because as negative as we are on this show throughout all of it, 
Uh, the reason we talk about the future, the reason we talk about these problems is because we have to fix them or it's we're facing this existential crisis. But we wouldn't be discussing them. We wouldn't be trying to fix them because believe me, trying to fix these problems fucking sucks. Organizing sucks. Uh, electoral work sucks. Doing things to make the world better sucks. And, and I mean, yeah, you get like a moral uh, benefit from it. You feel good when, when something is, is done successfully. But like as a whole, it's a fuck ton of work and it is not fun. And it leaves you burnt out and it leaves you depressed. But why do we keep doing it? Because we do think that we are helping and that we can build a better future. And that if we don't do this, then there won't be a better future for our friends, for our family, for our, our children one day, for the children of people we don't know, of people that we have never met. We have to fight for them too. And that's what's so important. That's what drives us because we want a better future, not just for us living in the supercomputer, Daniel, 100 years from now but for everyone who lives on this earth and not only the people, but also all the living creatures and plants and whatever else on this planet, because we're all in this together. Absolutely. Well put. And I completely believe alongside you that it's possible to get to a better world. And I think there are pathways to do that. And I think you're on to something when you talk about that we, the technology we've built, this data collection, Panopticon, or whatever other tool for maximizing profit accumulation that our economy has produced, these things can be repurposed for the greater good. And I definitely want to come back to that um, when we hit another topic dealing with the global economy and an issue that I think is the root of all of the issues that we talk about. But I don't want to leave surveillance just yet because I think there's a related issue, and that comes to social media. And I have a big-brained idea for the future for social media, okay? Late on me. So as we've talked about in previous episodes, our phones are modeled after casino machines, our apps, our social media, they're all designed from the same technology uh, that's informed by psychology that gets people addicted to things like slot machines. And we talked about how Instagram, for example, monitors your use of the app and then uses artificial intelligence tracking to figure out when is the best time to ping you so that you engage with the app the most. And we talked about how on Facebook, they've rewritten their algorithm when it comes to displaying content to you on your newsfeed based on what the algorithm thinks will get the most engagement. So they're literally policing the types of conversations and influencing the type of conversations people have, because if people want likes, they have to pose the right prompts, which get the right engagement. So we're literally being shaped as a social being, as a society, in the way we interact with people based on the fact that we're hooked to our apps and the apps are telling us how to behave to get our reward. And I have this idea of, of how we're going to escape this 100 years from now. And so, the idea of Facebook uh, artificially creating engagement, yeah, well, what if, you know, in this process, we get atomized as a culture, right? You know, we're always losing our ability to connect to people in the real world, but yet getting sucked into these digital realms where we have the illusion of connection to other people. And imagine as we go further down this road, down this path, we connect less and less with real people. And all of a sudden, without our knowledge, we're interacting with artificially created profiles of real people who are not actually real people. 
but they're computers, David. Bots. And we find ourselves in a world where all our social media engagement, the Twitters that we're interacting with, the social media pictures are all fake. And the comments are all fake, right? Which has, which has happened. We see this in social media, especially on forums like Reddit, where sometimes those comments are not real people at all. And it gets harder and harder to tell the difference. But so at first we hit rock bottom where we're totally atomized, totally isolated as people sucked into these digital realms, right? But here's where things take a crazy turn. The artificially created computers are programmed for maximum engagement. And as we don't realize that we're talking to the computers, all of a sudden the computers don't realize that they are talking to computers as well. And then you have this accelerated, uh, you know, Moore's Law thing where because of the exponential speed at which computers can adapt, you have this race towards engagement that sets off this uh, activity among artificially created profiles where there's so many conversations and excitement and engagement being generated by artificially created profiles against one another that we humans can't keep up. And all of a sudden, our eyes are open to the ridiculousness of this world that we've been sucked into. And these, the AI gets sucked into its own black hole of infinite conversations occurring at the speed of, you know, a hundred arguments per second. And the internet just explodes with all this unmanageable content constantly being recycled and engaged on that we as humans have nothing to do with. And through this division between artificial intelligence and humans, we find our escape and we open our doors outside our houses to see the sun for the first time and feel the wind on our face. And we look across the street to our neighbor. We make eye contact, and we all breathe a collective sigh of relief as the internet implodes upon itself in a black hole of pointless arguments and cat memes, and we go about living life in the real world once again. Or we can live in bliss. If we're talking about artificial people that we're interacting with all the time, why not just have artificial relationships? Yeah, imagine a dating application where... Somebody who is perfect for you is generated. You're perfect match. They send you photos. They send you texts. They're always there. They always know what to say. Uh, they're, they're perfect. They're your perfect thing. The only problem is they don't exist in reality. But how many people would choose that perfect lie over all the, the mess and disasters that happen in the real world of dating somebody who maybe is a little bit imperfect, but they're real? I don't know. These are questions that we're going to have to deal with in the future, probably the, the not too distant future, uh, but it won't matter because we won't have any free will. That was supposed to be my positive. Unless we find it. The, yeah. You got to find it. Go outside. Feel the wind. Fresh air. It's good for coronavirus. Go to the beach. I'm just saying. Make art. Computers are going to find it way more interesting to talk to each other than to us. But why do you think they have free will here? So anyway, David, what's the next topic? What's our 100 years? Well, you started going on about how you wanted to tell us about the economy that leads to this Mad Max collapse you were uh, excitedly fantasizing about. So tell us, tell us your vision for what our economic realities for 100 years look like. Well, it's real simple. I mean, the global economy is not sustainable. Um, as we've talked about, it's, it's not even secure. The, the more interdependent we are on these global scale 
supply chains, the more risk there is in the system. And this is what you talked about last week about the coronavirus and why it's such a risk to our economy. Because when trade is impacted and when these interdependencies that we've come to rely on no longer hold up, where do we get our goods? Where do we get our labor? And the economy falls apart. And I was really surprised, like I said, to find out that in New England, we are in, incredibly at risk for food insecurity because only 5% of the food here in New England is grown locally. We get it all from either Mexico or California. And my vision is, is a future of regional and local economy. Now, how are we going to get there is, I think, the vision for the future. And that's that we do away with what is the central issue, the, the central thing that has created this monstrous economy that we have that alienates people, disconnects people from each other, from their history, atomizes people, exploits people into precarity to where the only solution for many people is to, to work in a gig economy that doesn't respect them, doesn't provide health care, doesn't provide any means for aging in a secure way. And what do you think the core of this is, David? You tell me, Daniel. Property law. Okay. Right? When we talked about this in our suburb episode. We're, we're sounding very Georgian. Keep going. It's property law. We have to reform property. And this is something that has a long history in South America, especially Brazil, with the landless workers movement and agrarian form in various countries. But the main vehicle for exploiting people is through land. And I'm working for an organization right now, David, called Agrarian Trust, that's working on a model that is new and innovative in the United States that's never been seen before called agrarian commons. And the idea is there's no fix for wealth accumulation in this country that's not systemic. 98% of all the land in the United States is owned by white people, and it's been getting concentrated more and more and more to the point where Land prices are so expensive that no one can afford to farm. You know, 400 million acres of farmland is going to transition and be probably consolidated into large industrial agriculture in the next couple decades. And it's all because we've made it possible for a few number of people to acquire land, concentrate it, price everybody else out so that no one has access to land. And then through that precarity, we make people's lives terrible. And it all started with our abandonment of the idea of a commons. I mean, it started with enclosure in Europe where wealthy people took historically common land that had been enjoyed by all and started privatizing it and sectioning it off. And I think we have a problem in this country and in this economy generally where we think that land should be always held in private hands. But there is an alternative path forward, and this is something that Agrarian Trust is working on, to create a model where you remove land from financial markets, you remove it from this private ownership, and you put it into the hands of a group of local people to control it collectively and for their benefit. And I think this is something that has never really taken off in America. It's not something that's really been considered before. Because we have been so conditioned to think individualistically. But until we, as people, realize that we're in this together and that the only way to survive the coming climate crisis, the only way to survive food insecurity, economic collapse, 
is together as community, as people who support one another. But it starts by not allowing one individual to control the very ground that a whole town rests on. It, it starts by not allowing you know, wealth that has been accumulated in Harvard University to allow them to purchase scarce land in California to profit off of water decline at the detriment to the lives of everyone who lives around it, right? The only way to survive this world is through local empowerment and regional economies that do not depend on supply chains that sprawl halfway around the world. And that starts with property law and putting our natural resources and our land back into local people who can steward it together, take care of it. And I think that's where we're going to head, David, in 100 years from now. I think we will transcend this individualistic idea that every woman for himself and, you know, everyone else is just sink or swim. I like what you're preaching here, Daniel. And uh, I, I like the parts uh, where you're talking about how no one's ever worked on this before. It's never been put in practice. But it reminds me of an idea that's over 100 years old. And it's basically exactly what you've described plus one additional step, which I'll tell you about in a second, but it's called Georgism. Um, some people call it geoism to take it away from its founder, Henry George, who came up with these ideas in 1890, give or take. Uh, he is a book that you should read. Can I sign you homework in an episode? Because I'm going, I'm going to. Uh, he has a book called Progress and Poverty that um, created the idea of maybe you've heard before the land value tax and, and basically, his realization was that there are three functions of the economy, right? Three basic building blocks. One is labor, of course. One is capital in terms of either raw money or the goods used to turn it into final products. And then the third one, like you've correctly pointed out, is, is property. And so he and many other thinkers, and there were a lot of people who were really um, big supporters of this, people who are leaned on by the capital classes to deny all this stuff today. People like Adam Smith, John Locke, Thomas Paine. And they all were like, well, you know what? Property and the ownership of property is the basis of inequality in our society. And Henry George came up with a method in order to maintain property ownership, because a lot of people don't want to get rid of that, um, but do so in a way that it funds everything else and it builds equality rather than inequality via taxes and other purposes. So in, th in this functional method, land is taxed instead of labor. So you would have no income tax. You wouldn't have to be taxed on the, the labor that you do for others in order to generate wealth for them. But the capital class who owns land, property owners, would be taxed on the effective economic use of that land. So what you're talking about here, where uh, land and its economic goods is basically owned by a large group of people, is the creation of a small economy, a small government, that is basically a Georgia-style government, just without the realization that the land itself would be taxed in a formal government, but in, in, in an agricultural commons, everyone shares the profits equally. It's, uh, it, it's sort of a semantic difference almost more than anything else because you're creating in this local economy basically a local functioning micro-government. Uh, and they're very similar. So I, I encourage you, if, especially if you're, if you're actively working on these ideas, go read some Georgist uh, philosophy. It's very popular in a small, very passionate group of economists through today. And there's still a lot of work being done on the theory. And it is exceptional stuff and stuff because it doesn't just flat out eliminate the ownership of property like a lot of the better ideas do. Like you're talking about, it is much more palatable to regular people. So check it out. Georgism or geoism. 
They also used to call it single tax. But if you search those things, you'll find a lot of content. Uh, Henry George, Progress and Poverty. Look it up. That's assignment for all of you. What was the difference in owning property? There is still property ownership under Georgism, but the ownership of property is is taxed and at like a huge amount. And it's taxed based on the economic value it generates, but also the potential economic value that is not generating that it could. So like if I'm a landlord and I'm owning property, but I'm not renting it for whatever reason, I'm still being taxed at the potential economic use of it. And, and so in order for myself not to be losing money actively on it, I have to turn it into something that's economically productive or sell it to somebody else who will. And in that process, all governmental functions are funded by land tax and no other tax. There's no income tax, only property taxes on everything. So labor, which is the fundamental building block of the people who are least capital equipped, is not taxed. You are allowed to keep all of your labor as much as you can under a capitalist system, uh, minus the surplus value that you generate for the people that are employing you. But their surplus value that they're getting out of your labor has to be reinvested in order to cover the capital costs of their ownership of the property that you are using to generate capital from. So inequality is like sliced off the top. A lot of the surplus value that's generated in a capitalist system is immediately reinvested into the government and, and which then disperses it hopefully in a in an equitable way yeah i mean it sounds good david i'll definitely check it out my only like the only red flag to me though is just when it comes to how we value land because this is one of the major problems we have now which is that we have a crisis in terms of land management that industrial agriculture is destroying our environment oh yeah absolutely and part of it is, is is built into the system is it recognizes uh, negative externalities and the generation of pollution is taxed increasingly on top of that in order to make up for the damage it's doing it's a huge central component of it but like i don't want to get nitpicky on this because i'm not an expert on georgism but it absolutely is something they're aware of and is built into the system that some land is most valuable not being touched and if you touch it then it punishes you for that yeah we also need sustainable agriculture though yeah that that's what i'm saying if you generate unsustainable agriculture that creates more products that sell, you're taxed increasingly at a higher rate. So you end up making the same amount of money as you would in a more sustainable way, but you're also damaging the land, lowering its further, uh, it, its increased value. So the, the motivation then is for the user to find the right balance of generating profit, but also long-term health for the land that they occupy. Check out Progress in Poverty and Agrarian Commons or ideas for the future. Yeah, Progress in Poverty is 100 years old at this point, and there is, are better, newer texts, but I'm not a, a George's expert, so I can't tell you what they are. But look into it. But Daniel, so that, I mean, that's, that's your best case scenario, this, this common ownership of the lands, going back, a, a new idea for the future that goes back to the past and learns what we did right and takes it again, just tweaking the, the, the deal a little bit for a modern economy. But what's your worst case scenario? What is the absolute worst case that you see happening 100 years from now? Because we are such dumb fucks. Worst case scenario is we continue business as usual and our global economy collapses from the weight of resource scarcity and climate catastrophes and Mad Max. Mad Max. Mad Max. Mad Max. We're not allowed to say Mad Max on here. It's owned, so... We've invented the Ashes Ashes character, Mad Mac. But we already talked about Mad Mac. <laughs> we already talked about Mad Max. What? No, we didn't. I'm pretty sure we were saying Mad Mac. 
it just comes across weird because of our microphone. Are you trying to, you want to talk about copyright now? Because uh, we do have a show on copyright. Yeah, tell me, copyright's economics. Well, um, it kind of relates to the commons, right? I mean, we talked about how copyright and intellectual property allows companies to take something that is, should be owned by the community because it is a part of culture, right? Like Star Wars, for example, or, or like Mickey Mouse is something that we as a culture have shaped identities around, have uh, really connected with the people around us, have created artwork. Yet we allow companies to take these really conceptual ideas and cultural phenomena and then own them and exclude anyone from benefiting from them and profiting from them and uh, then controlling how these things get represented in our day-to-day lives. And I suppose if we as a culture can return to the idea of a commons, maybe starting with land and how we value things and how we work together on land and sustainable agriculture, maybe we can transfer this idea of commons to other areas so that we're not privatizing creative ideas. We're not privatizing designs of fashion, which by the way, is one of those industries that does not have copyright and intellectual property. A hundred years of fashion, fashion utopia. Daniel's the fashion king. Fashion utopia. But the same way that we have collaboration and total freedom to design fashion without someone saying, oh no, I, I copyrighted the suit pant. You can't design a suit pant. What if we had that in all creative outlets of our world? Music, visual art, Muzak. film, music, podcasts. Podcasts. Well, uh, let me jump in here because I, I want to hit some of my visions for the future. But I think this is a good jumping off point because this is one of those areas where we're talking about a utopic vision of 100 years from now. And I'm happy to announce right here today on Ashes Ashes that copyright is in fact dead. And it has been dead at this point for years. It's just that the copywriters haven't realized it. But look at the world. Look at the internet. Look at YouTube. Look at your favorite music. Look at the the things you see all around you on your social media and in the real world. And people are copyright thefts like fucking crazy. They're ripping things, they're combining things, they're making new stuff. We have a whole world, an entire cultural uh, zeitgeist right now built on the destruction of copyright and reusing that to build something that, frankly, is better than what the copyright holders ever could have put together in the first place. And so, right now, copyright is dead in the mind of the average individual. And so, yeah, you'll see somebody like putting watermarks on their shit or whatever and and photographers being like, look at my crappy picture of nothing. I'm going to copyright this in case someone tries to steal it. But whatever. Uh, The only people who still care about copyright at this point are cops, lawyers, and the rich monopolists who think that they can have a stranglehold and own the culture that belongs to all of us. But as these tools in order to create to remix, to build something new, become ever more accessible, and the ability to distribute them lies less and less on tightly controlled channels of radio or television or whatever, the technology we have in computers and the internet have killed copyright. People are able to build more things faster than any copyright holder can ever hope to imagine. And in fact, in many places, these copyright violations end up more popular than the actual product in the first place. And yes, of course, 
Many of these systems for distribution still have draconian copyright measures. I'm looking at you, YouTube, and your fucked up uh, copyright flag system. But these are temporary barriers while the copyright organizations and the law of America and other nations are strong enough to enforce these things. But as time goes on and their power becomes less and less because they become less culturally relevant and the United States itself is unable to prop itself up as it slowly rots away and becomes less and less until it's nothing. Preview of my vision for the future. Then the enforcement of these types of copyright also will wither away and we will find ourselves in the copyright utopia free of any sort of copyright ramifications that we currently live in. Uh, throwback to our very own copyright show, Daniel, where we do owe that fine of like a billion dollars or whatever still. So keep sending us money. We, should probably, we shouldn't be on the beach right now. We should be uh, working in the acid mines to pay this off. But that's episode 33, All Rights Reserved. Check it out. It's one of my faves. But the other half of this is as technology finds itself thrust into the future where we have the ability to generate new voices, new characters, new faces, face swaps. Uh, deep fakes, all these things have the potential to once and for all eliminate the ability of copyright to exist because the act of creating tied to a single individual that is the idea in copyright that they're the only person who could make this thing. That's why they have a monopoly on its value and they're able to charge economic rent for that creation will disappear because our increasingly sophisticated machine learning algorithms can imitate basically anything that we've already done. That's not only art, but that's voices, that's faces, that's likenesses. So what is there left to copyright if all these things can be created from nothing? Something to think about. But economically speaking, we are at a crossroads, Daniel. Right now, we find ourselves at the precipice of an economic collapse. Right, right now, as we're recording this, uh, stock market futures are down like 4 or 5%. Um, traders are panically predicting the end of the world. But as we all know, the stock market is not the economy. But what we do know is that not only is the stock market sick, but the economy is as well. And business as usual will not carry this economy forward into the future much more than a few years. We are at the end game of the crisis of capitalism and the inherent contradictions it has created in order to fuel its infinite growth up to this point. But as you so correctly pointed out, Daniel, that growth is not infinite and cannot be infinite by the very nature of the limitations of this earth and of everything on it. So we're here in the end times, late stages of capitalism, and we get to see the collapse of this system. We get to see these contradictions implode. And unfortunately, we are the ones who are going to have to suffer through the consequences. And so now we as a people here in the United States and also around the world have a choice with what happens next. And unfortunately, it looks like we're choosing the bad option. But one, we can build a parachute to soften this fall, this collapse. We can shift this capitalist hellscape economy that we've constructed over the past hundreds of years to something that is more fair, more equitable is designed around bringing everybody up instead of elevating a select few and hope that when everybody's needs are met, that we can scale things back in order to meet not only our own needs and wants, but also the needs of the earth from which we depend upon in order to live. 
If we don't do that, if we don't start shifting in this fairer and more equitable direction, but instead embrace these inequalities, embrace the fact that a very select few are going to hit the lottery and live like the kings that the kings of the past only dreamed about, well, then we are all going to suffer as this system collapses and implodes and kills millions and tens of millions and billions as it falls down around us. That is one path, and that's the path we're barreling down towards. That's the path that we have a referendum on right now here in the United States as we primary between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, one standing as the status quo who stands for nothing, saying, if we keep doing what we're doing now, I'm sure everything will be fine. And one saying, fuck this, this system is broken, this system is rigged, let's try and make things at least a little bit better. And of course, towering over them all, the orange visage of Donald Trump and the excess that he stands for, and also the end times collapse that we know will come as we follow in his direction. These are our choices right now. These are generational choices in that we will start the beginning of a new generation of an economy with one, and in the other one, we choose the start of a new generation that is the end times for all the people on earth. Ignoring the crisis of the climate and the problems that the economy has created with that, but the very inherent contradictions in the economy itself, even without all the climate change shit, it's all going to collapse. It's all falling apart, and there's nothing that can be done to save it unless, you know, we try something different. So 100 years from now, I like to envision that we're in this wonderful economy, Daniel, if you can call it that. Things are local. You're integrated in your community, as you point out. There is a commons, and the commons is the world itself. We collectively invest in it in order to make sure that it survives as well as all of us. We focus on happiness. We focus on sustainability. And we focus on making sure that the needs of everyone and everything is met first and foremost before we focus on the wants and the whims and the things that sound nice but are by no means necessary. And then finding contentment and not wanting. I think that's the key. But, you know, the other side is Mad Max, baby. So we got two choices. Yeah. I mean, Mad Max. Well, I like that you said, you know, no matter what, things are going to collapse. And I think it's important to acknowledge what you said there, that we should strive for local and commons. That when we say the world's going to collapse, I mean, yes, that's, that's going to be pretty bad. but we would want things to collapse as they are. We, we would want the global economy to collapse as they are and be replaced by something more natural, more compassionate, more local, more humane, right? We don't have to imagine that collapse means the death of all of us as people, but we should imagine the death of the evil systems that have come to dominate our world. And one doesn't have to follow the other. Baby, I just want a world that I can know isn't gonna collapse. Baby, I just want a world where you got what you need and I got what I need and we got each other, baby. That's my musical version. I just want a world with you and me singing about ashes, singing about end times. Living out a world in freedom. Freedom. Freedom to be 
you and me, just like we always thought we would. With our best friends, with our best friends in this world of ours. Okay, Daniel, this is too long already, but we can't address 100 Years the Future on Ashes Ashes without the big elephant in the room, and that is climate. The climate change we're all dealing with day to day, the climate change destroying the earth and everything on it. What do you envision 100 years of climate change? Wait, I thought we were done. That's why we were singing. No, bro. Singing is just what gets us through the day. We got to finish with this dark stuff first and then, you know, more songs. Okay. All right. Um, well, um, I mean, I don't really know what to say other than Mad Max. Like, that is the future of climate. Mad Max. But if I could try to find a little optimism, a little bit of hope, I guess my hope would be that 100 years from now, yes, we have massive change in the ocean. We have wildfires. We have hurricanes. We have sea level rise. We have um, high parts per million of uh, CO2. But in the midst of all this, life continues and life adapts. And as we shift to a local and more regional way of living, maybe we adapt as human beings. And in this new local and regional way of living, we've come to appreciate all life as sacred, all life as, as worthy. And in that process in which reciprocity is reintroduced into our culture, maybe in this process we start to discover all that life has to offer and all the adaptation that life is capable of. And when we no longer depend on just you know, one variety of tomato for half the world, we realize that so much diversity exists in this world that is capable of surviving drought or surviving heat waves. And these are the forms of life that we appreciate and cultivate and that sets off a new diversity of life, no doubt smaller and less diverse than it once was, but still capable of survival. I think the coming climate crisis whether we like it or not, is going to force this type of relationship with the earth. How can we go on living, extracting and bulldozing over the earth when it becomes more and more unstable? It's not possible. Our systems will buckle under the weight of the changing climate. And so we will have no choice but to appreciate what life remains. And as Cassius pointed out in that clip we shared two weeks ago, you know, life was abundant on North America when colonists arrived, not just because that's the way it was, but because human beings had a relationship with the earth in which, through reciprocity and appreciation, abundance was encouraged. And maybe we have lost hope because we have lost sight of the fact that we belong to this earth, and through reciprocity and through a natural and healthy relationship with the earth, we can support each other not just dominating and abusing the earth, but mutual beneficial relationships. Maybe climate change will be the earth's way of letting us know that our civilization and our way of extraction is at an end. And yes, there will be suffering in the process, but can we imagine a light at the end of this tunnel, a way forward, a correction to the evil ways that we have been living? And can we start today? Can we start today with gratitude, mutual aid, reciprocity, love of life? And what would that do if we all adopted that type of life, that type of mindset? That we're not individuals here looking to build our own castles, 
exclude others, extract from the earth, but we're here together as communities who don't need to grow bank accounts. We need to grow love. We need to grow resilience. We need to grow our crops. We need to do so by listening to what the earth needs so that it can give us what we've always needed. That's my vision for the future, David. Okay, it's my turn. We're going to go back to our two worlds here. One is absolutely Mad Mac, right? We're facing unprecedented climate disaster. I thought it was Mary Mac. What? Wasn't it Mary Mac? Mary Mac. I said Mad Mac. Yeah, but I thought, it, I thought copyright. It was supposed to be Mary Mac. Mary Mac? Are we getting cease and desist orders? Con- oh, listen, don't interrupt my flow. <laughs> to return to my point. We find ourselves in the midst of unprecedented climate change, of climate collapse, of climate catastrophe. Here, in the midst of the sixth mass extinction, the fastest in the vast history of the Earth, we are the cause of this destruction, of the loss of life that no one, no human, no animal, not the Earth and its rocks and its soul itself has seen in its billions of years of spinning around the sun. That is the reality of our world today. And so to sit here and say that in 100 years, these problems will have disappeared, even for utopian vision, that's not realistic. But let us focus for one second on what happens if we do nothing. The path that we are on our way down today, where we know, and this is the crime, where we know what will happen if nothing is done. If nothing is done, Parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere climbs to amounts that have never been seen before in all of history. If we do nothing, the seas will rise to the highest levels in thousands or millions of years. If we do nothing, the animals that have evolved in perfect harmony over the many millions of years will they themselves disappear. The earth will be thrown out of balance. In the seas, on land around the world, the mountain tops, the plains, in the very sky itself, where the jet stream bends in ways we've never experienced, where the clouds are increasing in ways never seen before. We have the power to destroy this earth, and that is a choice that we have made. A choice we have made to sacrifice what has given us life in order to generate wealth, a wealth that is accumulated and hoarded by select few. And what is the result of this destruction beyond the lives of the countless species which will no longer make their noises heard, which will no longer grace this earth that was their home for so many years? The consequences beyond this natural world is death and misery for those of us who have created these problems in the first place and for those of us whose only crime was to exist in a world designed by select few to destroy them and to destroy all other life that supports them. I'm talking about the people born into the developing nations around the world, born into indigenous communities who we are happy to destroy for profit, the people most at risk, who find themselves at the mercy of the choices of boardrooms and governmental offices around the world, whose only crime was to exist. These hordes will soon find themselves forced out of their homes which have been homes for in places thousands of years, they will be forced into our doorsteps asking for help. And as we find ourselves right now, I mean right now, Daniel, in the borders of Turkey, in the borders of Greece, in the borders here 
in the United States, we are denying these people the help that they need in order to survive because of the problems that we ourselves have created. We have chosen death and pain and destruction in order to profit. That is our reality at the moment. And as we continue this business as usual, that is the future that we are consciously choosing. If we continue to go down this path, if we continue to prioritize profit over people, if we continue destroying the world, we will find these disasters ever bigger. We will find them closer to home and we will find the very small number of people who are making the choices to destroy the world are increasingly besieged by a world thrown into disarray by their actions. The walls will get bigger. The walls will get longer. The result of people trying to cross them will get more and more violent. Eight and a half degrees Celsius. It's possible. Meters of sea rise. It's inevitable. This is the future we are heading towards. We are not doing enough to stop it. And though there are many countries and people and corporations providing lip service saying we're doing something, we're making a change, we're enabling a better, greener future, so many of these are lies and half measures and just delaying of this pain and death. But there are still choices to make sure our world is filled with that pain and death in the future. We've kicked the can down the road for so long, but we are beginning to find ourselves in a place where we can no longer ignore that. So we must make the conscious choice to do something. So that's the future I see right now, Daniel, with our business as usual. But I want to take a tragedy also unfolding at the moment in order to find a piece of inspiration. Because I think if we come down to what the purpose of this show is, it is to find inspiration. In knowing that as big as a problem might appear to be, there is a way to overcome it. There is a silver lining to some of the worst problems unfolding in our world today. So I want to talk just for one moment about the unfolding pandemic, COVID-19, coronavirus. It's been a disaster. Hundreds of thousands of people have gotten sick. Thousands have died. And we know these numbers will explode over the coming weeks and months. But I want to find a piece of hope in that, that economic disaster that you talked about potentially occurring because of this COVID-19. At the same time, that economic disaster is motivated by the alterations of people's behavior. They get it. They understand that this disease is an existential threat. They aren't traveling. They aren't flying. They aren't doing many of the actions that was once taken for granted as, of course, I'm going to do this. Of course I will. It's my right as an American, as a Chinese national, as a European. It is my right to travel this world, to consume without abandon, to eat the world alive. But now, when I'm faced with my own mortality, I've changed my actions. I'm not going out. I'm going home. I'm staying with my family. I'm socially distancing myself. And unfortunately, that's what it's taken in order to start affecting real, genuine economic change. And that real, genuine economic change has actual effects on the climate. We've already seen it over China, and I'm sure in the coming weeks and months, we will see for the first time in ages, the climate get a little bit better. Our carbon dioxide emissions go down just a little bit. And we can start to understand the type of monumental societal and cultural change that will be necessary in order to build that better climate future. And it looks huge and it looks terrifying. We're just beginning to understand 
the type of impact on our life that real systemic change may look like. But at the same time, we're realizing that it's possible. When people begin to realize that climate change is not only the same systemic personal risk that a pandemic is, then we can start making this actual change. And we are well on our way for that as people get primed and learn how to work together in order to save each other. We can start turning that energy towards saving not ourselves in the coming weeks and months, but ourselves in the coming decades, our children's lives in the coming decades, the lives of our children's children's children 100 years from now. This is a wake-up call, our last chance to understand what it takes to work together in order to build a better world. And I hope we learn that lesson going forward. And though the coming weeks and months will be hard, and the coming years and decades after that even harder, we will make sacrifices. We will suffer the consequences of the choices that we've made in the previous years and the choices made by those who came before us. But it is our duty to just shoulder that burden and acknowledge the fact that this is what it costs to make sure that the world will continue living, to make sure that for our future generations, there will be a world to inherit. So in my vision of the future, we live less. We suffer a little bit more in order to take the burden of suffering off those who suffer the most. Just like we talk about a quality of access for food, for resources, whatever, we also need to take some equality of suffering because it's going to take a little bit from all of us in order to make sure that those of us most vulnerable won't suffer the most. It's a price we have to pay. But that price means a better future. It means the actual existence of a future for not just future generations, but for all life on this earth. And that's a hard lesson to take. It's a lesson that we find ourselves in right now. And that fact shows us that it's possible. So while we sit here contemplating what it means to live in a pandemic, turn that same thought to what it means to live in a mass extinction. Because what are we besides a pandemic for the earth, for the life in the oceans, for the plants on land? Because of our choices, we've given this earth a fever. But if we work with the earth, as sustainable stewards, then we can reverse that and build something better. And we will. A lot to think about, Daniel. As always. 100 episodes, and you can find all of them on our website at ashesashes.org, along with transcripts, sources, facts, additional information, uh, all sorts of things, including a store where you can buy stickers at ashesashes.org. As always, a lot of time and research goes into making these shows possible. No research this time, just a bunch of rambling incoherently. But, but if you like this show, Ashes, Ashes, and would like us to keep going, you can support us because we don't take advertising. We never will. This is a 100% listener-supported show. So the way you can support us is by giving us a review. Uh, five stars on iTunes, baby. Recommend us to a friend. Have these discussions with your uh, family and acquaintances so that we can shift this culture and this world. Um, and you can send us financial love at patreon.com slash ashesashescast. We do appreciate it. We would like to thank our associate producer, John Fitzgerald, 
And if you would like to contact us, we have an email address, ashesashes.org. <laughs> no, it's contact, contact at ashesashes.org. Send us your thoughts. We read them. We appreciate them. Emails are great and all, but what we really want to hear is you narrating your favorite Mad Mac fan fiction. And you could do that for us on our phone number where you call and leave a voice message at 313-99-ASHES. That's 313-992-7437. Give us a call. Leave a message. If you don't want to do that, check us out on your favorite social media site. We are on Reddit. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just search Ashes Ashes Cast. We're there posting memes, news stories, and participating in our community speaking of our community you can find the best online community of geniuses anxious people preppers doomers whatever on our discord find a link to that just go up to community on our website click the discord invite link ashesashes.org and this may be our 100th episode but it is definitely not our last we will be back next week with something that is hopefully a little bit more understandable and less rambly. Uh, I'm sure we'll be discussing the dynamic and who knows what else as you tune in for another Ashes Ashes. We hope to see you there. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.